Here the handout, we have the printed text from the New Testament that we'll be teaching out of, the book of Romans, chapters 13, uh, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You may be seated. This text reminds us that our duty is always and only what the law of God reveals. We are to owe no one anything except to love our neighbor. And so the idea is that the owing, the obligation of action, is limited by the law of God. And it is also set by the law of God. We have a positive duty to do everything God commands. And we can choose to do things outside of our obligation to other people. We can go an extra mile. We can, we can do things that are designed to be beyond what is obligatory for the sake of winning people. But we need to know the difference between what our conscience should be obligated to do and what things can be useful in certain circumstances. And so the law of God teaches us the extent of our duties. And so that gives us freedom from the doctrines and commandments of men that you cannot find yourself obligated beyond what the law of God establishes an authority's extent to be. Now, as we consider the commandments that are laid out, you remember that earlier on in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we're focused on lawful authority of human institutions in terms of we, we had a focus on the state. And so the fifth commandment was laid out there. And so the fifth commandment is the context, and then we go into the idea of love in terms of what you owe to people in authority and also people in general. And then there's a listing out of the remaining commandments that explain the second table, right? So we have the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, do not steal. The ninth commandment, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the tenth commandment, to not covet, to not covet what your neighbor has. And so those commandments explain how to love your neighbor. So you should love your neighbor as yourself. So what we have Paul doing here is he's showing us that the law is ordered in such a way that you have the two major categories of loving God and loving neighbor. And then he's examining in more detail the love of neighbor. And so we have the fifth commandment with lawful authority as a type of loving neighbor. And all the other commandments that are underneath loving neighbor are explanations of what you owe to your neighbor. And so the law is organized for us in the major heads of love God, love neighbor, and then the other commandments, the Ten Commandments, are categorized underneath those two major heads of doctrine. And it's interesting, when you look at this text, um, verse, verse 9 ends with, and if there are any other commandment, if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying. The word summed up there is actually are all contained under the head of this. Okay, so that idea of a head of doctrine, that's an English 
you know, phrase, but there, that word head is actually present there in the Greek. The, the summed up is a way of trying to make it easier to understand, but it's, they're all contained in this head of doctrine is the idea there itself. And so the, there's a historic reformed way of talking about the Ten Commandments as heads of doctrine. And you'll also hear things like the five solas listed, and each one of them are, are a head of doctrine, or you'll say that about tulip with each of the parts of, of tulip. So, so anytime you organize doctrines together, under more easily memorizable sets. They serve as heads of doctrine. And God has given to us examples of heads of doctrine in the Ten Commandments. Also, the Lord's Prayer serves as a set of key doctrines about what we're to pray for. And so, the Lord's Prayer, when memorized and studied, provides for you a rubric of prayer. And the Ten Commandments provide you a rubric for considering your duties. And so, the Scriptures are organized in this way. So as we've been considering the, the commandments, we've been looking at kind of collections of the doctrine underneath each of these commandments, and we've been looking at what was done by the Westminster Assembly. And so we're looking at the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which seeks to provide for us collections of verses and explanation of what the duties are that are contained in these commandments. So we're considering the commandment, the Tenth Commandment, the commandment to not covet. Now, what I want to begin with before I start to read what the larger catechism has to say is I want to explain that the 10th commandment show, it's pointing to the idea that it's our duty to have our affections rightly ordered. It's pointing to our duty to have our affections rightly ordered. So what does that mean? What is an affection? Okay, so affections, you'll find that word a lot in uh, Puritan writings. And so an affection is sort of a, a rational valuing of something. Right? When you have a high value of something, um, the, the result is uh, that you're going to desire it. And so the more you value a thing, the more you're going to desire it. Desire is controlled by the perception of value. When you think something is valuable, you, you desire it. And what you desire will control what you choose. Right? The, the will is the mind choosing. And so what you choose is you always choose what you most value at a moment. You always choose what you most value at that moment. So when we sin, it is because we are valuing something above God at that moment. And so, right ordering of affection, the right ordering of the inward valuation system, is a part of the process of sanctification that results in right action and speech. So the externals are controlled by the internal. And so the Lord Jesus Christ taught that we should not just clean the outside of a cup, but rather clean the inside of it. That we need not be like the Pharisees who are like dead men's tombs, painted white on the outside, but filled with dead men's bones. And so, how do you see the inside cleaned out? It's by having right doctrine, which helps you to have right valuation, so that your desires are properly ordered, so that you will make choices that manifest themselves in a testimony to the inward life. And so the Tenth Commandment is about the right ordering of affection. And so the Tenth Commandment, Let's look at the Westminster Larger Catechism as it explains this. Which is the Tenth Commandment? 
The Tenth Commandment is, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And we see that in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy 5. Right? It's repeated in Deuteronomy 5. So, this, this commandment here, I want to analyze the wording of it for just a moment. It begins with the house. Now, when we hear household as Americans, or when we see, when we see house, Hebrew word bet, when we see house, what we think is we think a building that you live in. Okay, but when you, when you see the word bet or house in the Old Testament, overwhelmingly, it's not pointing to the building, it's pointing to the household, which includes the property. The property and the persons, the name and honor of that house, and so the household. Now, in, in Greek, you'll, you'll see that as oikos, and so this idea of the word economy is based upon the word oikos, right? Oikos and namas together makes economics, okay, and so that's the namas is law, and oikos is house, and so you have the law of the house. And the idea of economics is studying the household is a firm. It's an economic firm. It's a company. The household is a maker of wealth. The household is a place that produces assets and where loyalty relationships lie, where there's a duty to work together for dominion and discipleship. And so it is easy to look at somebody else's situation in life and to covet their station. And so their household, where they are, is this person in a household that you view as better in its order, in its wealth, in its beauty than you? Are there more people? Are there greater loyalties or giftings to those people? To look upon it and to say, that person's life is so much better than mine. And I wish I had what they had as opposed to what I have. So this idea of the household is sort of pointing to the condition of the person's life. Do not covet the place of another. And so then it moves into some of the details of that. And the text says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The wife is the queen of the house. right? And so when we look at the wife of the house, it's sort of the, the person who is most high there. And there's obviously the sexual relationship. And there's also this working together and the, the friendship and the, the coming forth of children out of that relationship. Nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, there are few treasures on earth more valuable than the loyalty of a competent and intelligent servant who is loyal. And so to try to disaffect servants from people that they work for is a destruction of great loyalty, a destruction of great value. Now, some of the Puritan writers seem to have sometimes said that it is wrong to even seek to uh, entice a servant away by offering better wages, which is nonsense. That's, that's not wrong. It's not like a, you know, slaves, servants are not slaves. They're not obligated to, to stay forever uh, on, a, on a particular state working. There is nothing wrong with seeking to offer a better thing to encourage a change. But what's wrong is seeking to disaffect, to alienate affections by wrongly destroying reputation. That's the thing that the covetousness can lead to. Now, the ox or the donkey, those are capital goods that produce wealth. And so it's the household, the queen of the household, the servants, 
the capital goods. And so these are all things that point to things that generate, these are all things that generate wealth. And, and so don't, don't have a covetousness for the station and the wealth production capacity of your neighbor. And then it goes to lesser things. Do not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, as we think about covetousness, covetousness is desire, but it's not all desire. Eastern religions seek to communicate that the way to happiness is by the elimination of desire. That is nonsense. It's rubbish. Desire is an inherent part of rational being. If you are rational, you have thought content. There are things you think. If you are rational, you have purposes, goals, desires. If you are rational, you make choices out of those desires for the accomplishment of them. God has thought content, God has goals, and God makes choices. We are to be like God in terms of the renewal of the image, not like God in choosing what the definition of good and evil is. Discontentment is at root a discontentment with our station as creatures. We want to choose the definition of good and evil. We want to be like God in the way that the serpent deceived Eve. We want to define good and evil rather than be subject to a definition that God has imposed upon us in our creation and also in his law. So, contentment and discontentment, coveting and lawful desire, need to be carefully considered. Lawful desire is desiring anything that God commands us to do and any good result through the lawful means. So, is it good to want to improve your material wealth? Yes, if you want to do it through industry. Is it good to want to improve your health? Yes, if you want to do it through the application of the lawful means lawfully obtained. Is it good to desire better reputation, more power? Is it good to desire pleasures in this life? Yes, when lawfully obtained by lawful means and not viewing them as the good. And so we need to realize all of those things exist for the purpose of the glory of God. And so when we receive them, we should give gratitude for it. We should give thanks for them to God. And we should use them in gratitude, knowing that they are not the good. They are not the end. They are not sufficient for our happiness. They are not sufficient to make all things good. They are not sufficient for us as rational creatures. If we place our hope in those things, we will find them to be petty gods, and they will disappoint us. And so what we ought to do is to see those things as gifts of God that can be used for the glory of God in the whole of life. So contentment is happiness. Contentment is happiness. Contentment is not an absence of desire, as explained. Contentment is happiness. And happiness is the effect of getting what you think is good. And we are to be happy. We are to be the happiest of men. We are called because we have what is good. We have the knowledge of God. We possess God and it cannot be taken away. We are called to be happy in all circumstances. 
Our happiness, our joy, even in the midst of suffering, is to be startling to the race of men. And so, in that hope, in that happiness, in the midst of suffering, it should call others to ask us, what is this joy? What is this hope that you have? What rational explanation can you possibly give for it? And in the midst of suffering, when we have joy, when we continue to be happy warriors, the questions come, and the answers are more plausible. And so we can give a defense for the hope that we have. Happiness is an effect of getting what you believe is good. And if you're going to be happy in a lasting way, you need to have a belief about what is good that will be stable. So you need a knowledge of what is good. An ability to defend your claim by rational justification what is good. So if we consider God and the fact that the denial of God results in a denial of any meaning, any ability to distinguish between good or evil, that will empower us to have a stable happiness because we will believe we have God, we have the knowledge of God, that's how we possess Him, and that it cannot be taken from us. So apologetics is a powerful tool, and apologetics is first and foremost not for other people, not so you can win arguments against other people, not so you can persuade and control other people. Apologetics is first and foremost for yourself. It's so that you can preserve the happiness of your soul. It's so that you can preserve the stability of the wisdom that you have. It's so that you can give an answer against your own doubts. The most important challenges against Christianity are the ones that arise in your own mind. And so whatever challenges, whatever doubts, whatever things raise themselves up arrogantly against the knowledge of God, when they present themselves in your own mind, it's your duty to tear them down. And the weapon of your warfare is the word of God. And to deconstruct, to tear apart, to show the foolishness of these things is the duty of the believer. The knowledge of God relies upon an ability to tear down falsehood. And the word of God is powerful to tear down falsehood. And so contentment is rooted in a stability of the possession of the knowledge of God an ability to defend it against conceptual idols. Now, suffering, when we think about suffering, we can think about suffering in terms of the suffering of soul that comes from meaninglessness, boredom, and guilt. And that's sort of the, the intrinsic elements of disbelief, right? If you, if you don't have a defense for hope, hope will not last long. If you do not have a defense for hope, hope will not last long. And so, suffering of soul comes when you don't have hope. Now, there's an order of things when we think about hope, so I'm going to pause there and make sure we have clear definitions for talking about contentment. And so, contentment is a, a sort of stable happiness about possession of what is good, and discontentment is unhappiness. And if we are unhappy, that doesn't mean that we don't have any suffering. It doesn't mean that we, we have suffering necessarily that's external. We are unhappy about our condition, and perhaps that condition is internal. You can, you can be rich and powerful and, and honored among men and be unhappy. 
Happiness comes from having what you think is good. And if you don't know what the definition of good is, if you don't know the ultimate purpose, then no external thing can ultimately last in terms of providing you with happiness. And so suffering, we think about the internal suffering, suffering is most importantly about an absence of faith, hope, and love. So faith is understanding and believing something. Christian faith is understanding and believing the mind of God revealed to us. And that faith, when you understand things clearly, when you understand the definition of God, when you understand the attributes of God, when they're laid out, the denial of them is absurd. And so if you want to have a deep knowledge and a defensible position for your hope, you need to have an extremely clear understanding of who God is and to understand what the denial of God and his attributes means. So if you deny God, you're denying ultimately that there's an eternal mind where truth resides. If there is no eternal mind where truth resides, then truth is not eternal. If truth is not eternal, then truth changes. And if truth changes, what was true yesterday might be false today. 2 plus 2 used to equal 4, and now it equals 5. Blame Common Core. And so, when you look at that change and the destruction of any sort of ability for truth to last, there becomes a meaninglessness to all things. If truth is not lasting, if truth is not stable, knowledge is impossible, and the whole of life becomes a mist and a mirage. And so the eternality of truth relies upon an eternal mind thinking truth. And so there are more details, more definitions, more arguments to go into to consider those things. But the eternality of God's mind is necessary for any other truth. And so when you understand the definition of God, it allows you to very quickly consider the necessity of God, the logical necessity of God, that the denial of God results in absurdity. And so suffering, first and foremost, is from disbelief. Faith is understanding and believing, and saving faith is understanding and believing the truth revealed by God. And so if we do not have faith in what God has revealed, we will have no basis for hope. Hope is a confidence in something you desire. You can desire a thing, you can wish for it, and have no basis for thinking that it will happen. You can have confidence that something's going to happen and not think that it's good. That does not bring hope, that's dread. Hope is confidence and desire united. And so our hope, we have, because of the faith that we have, a strong belief in what God is going to accomplish in history and for our good. And so, as we consider that thing that God will accomplish, the glorifying himself in the earth, the question is, do you desire it? Is it a good thing for you that God is going to fill the earth with the knowledge of himself? Is it a good thing for you that he's going to come in judgment is it a good thing for you that he will reward the wicked and the just? 
And if you think it's a good thing for you, it must be because you think that either you are perfectly righteous and will obtain a reward as the just, or it's because you think that you are not righteous, but a perfectly righteous one has given you a righteousness that is not your own. He's given you a righteousness to cover you. And so if you're going to have hope, you need to believe that Jesus Christ has paid for all of your sons, has provided you with a righteousness that's not your own, and that he is going to give you possession of the inheritance that he himself has, a possession of all things. And so that day of judgment, a day of rewarding the righteous, becomes a day where you are rewarded as though you had always been righteous, because in Christ you are counted as such. So then there is love. Love is the desire of the well-being of the object. It's the desire of God's well-being. It's the desire of your neighbor's well-being. It's the desire for your own well-being. The object of your love is the thing you desire the well-being of. And love comes out of that. Love comes out of hope. The reason love comes out of hope is if you do not have the faith, if you do not know what has been revealed by God, your knowledge of what is good and what is evil will be non-existent. If you know what is good and what is evil, but don't believe the gospel, and therefore do not have hope that you have been saved from your law-breaking, then you will know the difference between good and evil and despair because you are evil. And so knowing the difference between good and evil and having confidence that God is going to reward you as though you were righteous because you're righteous in Christ, that's necessary for you to love out of gratitude. It is necessary as a motive to be able to stably act rather than to despair. And so contentment requires a knowledge of God and a knowledge of what he has promised to do in the future and a knowledge that it's for your good. And that gives you great power then to love God and love neighbor. So the suffering that comes from the denial of the truth results in discontentment. If you do not believe the truth about God, you will find life meaningless. Because you have no purpose, you will find things boring. And you will have an increasing sense of guilt because of the fact that you continue to meaninglessly pursue things. That you, you recognize the way in which you believe delusion. Because you will chase something down, be dissatisfied by it, and realize that the thing you put your hope in was trash. So only the pursuit of God does not result in disillusionment. External suffering, external suffering, toil, poverty, famine, strife, leading to murder or even war, physical deterioration from old age, sickness, death, physical death, even mass death and plague. These things cannot destroy happiness. We need to understand that possession of wealth, possession of good relationships with human beings, possession of long life and health, those things are all worth trading for the knowledge of God. 
if you lose relationships and possessions and health for the sake of the knowledge of God, you have made a good trade. Now, if God is the good, sometimes we can have a confusion as Christians where we think perhaps the various things we're commanded to do are the same thing as knowing God. We have virtues like self-control. We have virtues like industry. We have virtues like sobriety. These virtues are not themselves the knowledge of God, but they spring from the knowledge of God. And they are means to grow further in the knowledge of God. So we have to have a clear identification of what the good is. God is the good. He is the highest good. God is the thing that's better than everything else. Now we cannot take possession of God as though he were a physical material. You don't get him in buckets. You don't get him in droplets. You don't take him in, right? This, this false view of God as being like a physical object is where Romanism gets its view of the Lord's Supper and baptism. It makes it so that there's a the pouring of baptismal water sort of necessarily transfers this grace substance. The eating of the bread is really the eating of the physical body of Christ and is a transfer of grace substance. The drinking of the wine is really a drinking of the blood of Christ physically and is a transfer of the grace substance. We need to avoid thinking that we take possession of God through some sort of magical or mystical taking in of things. This, this view that physical objects are where God is possessed or where he's located or anything like that. Those types of idolatry come from not thinking about God as spiritual. So God is a mind. Minds are not physical things. Your brain is not your mind. Your thoughts are not chemical reactions in your head. The mind is spiritual. The mind is not material. And so the way we possess God, the way we possess God is by knowing God. We think God's thoughts. And God's mind, God himself, he is what he thinks. As we think God's thoughts, we are thinking God. And that's revealed to us in the scriptures. As we think God's thoughts and believe them to be true, we are not only possessing in sort of a temporary look at it way, but as we believe it, we are taking ownership of it. And so as we understand and believe the thoughts that are possessed by God, we are taking possession of God. Now that's impossible by your own power. You do not have the power to understand and to believe what God has revealed in yourself. It requires the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. If you are an unbeliever, then it requires him to take you from dead to alive. It requires him to regenerate your soul, to take dry bones and make them into a living body. A heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. And if you are already a believer and you have spiritual life, that does not mean you have the power in yourself to believe the next truth, 
to believe the additional piece. It still requires the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the darkness of your mind and to cause the false things to be displaced and torn down and to have in place of them put the truth. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is necessary for you to grow in the knowledge of God, and that is how you grow in possession. But yet God has given to us commandments about the means that we are to use, word, sacrament, prayer, all of the commandments of God, not as though they necessarily and effectually caused us to believe more truth, but because they are means that God blesses. And so he's given us a law to point us to the means to grow in the knowledge of God, and his Holy Spirit effectually causes them to be useful. The virtues of a Christian life are the behaviors and attitudes and habits that encourage or that cohere with, that are consistent with a pursuit of the knowledge of God. But they do not have the power in themselves to grow the knowledge of God. And so we use those things, we use the virtues that God has appointed, and we pray for the blessing of God upon them. Now, there are also, that, that's, the rejection of those things is, is moral evil. In, in the, the root of it, a, a belief or act that's contrary to the revealed moral order is moral evil. And that leads to meaninglessness, boredom, and death. And so happiness is encouraged, contentment is encouraged by pursuing God. That's the positive of what we're to put on. The problem is that we tend to have strongholds that keep us away from there. And so we have false beliefs that discourage that. And those false beliefs result in foolish actions that bring external problems. Those false beliefs result in external actions that result in problems. And those problems, we start to give our attention to solving those problems. If I can just improve my outward condition of wealth, if I can just improve my relationships, if I can just improve my health, then I will have time for reading philosophy books. Rather than attacking the root, we attack symptoms. If you find yourself unhappy over your wealth, relationships, and health, and you think you don't have happiness in the midst of it, I guarantee you that when all those problems are solved, you will still not be happy. If you grow in the knowledge of God and increase in your happiness, even in the midst of external sources of suffering, then you will find that the external sources start to be subdued because you will apply the word of God to it, and you will find that you are happy in the storm and that you are happy when it is gone. And when we have an absence of storms, our prosperity, our blessed condition is meant for us to be able to spend more resources on growing in the knowledge of God. Peace and prosperity are for sprinting. And so when we are suffering, that suffering is a callback to say, you would not use peace and prosperity for the honor of God. 
this suffering is a reminder that God is the one who gives you the peace and prosperity. Now sometimes you can have a Job-like situation. And then it's testing. And when there's a test, God multiplies the blessing of the successful completion of the test. And so tests we should give thanks for, knowing that they are for our good. And suffering that's disciplined we should give thanks for, knowing that it's designed to call us back. And so we look at those things and we can say the external actions of God against us are not really against us, they are for us. And as we read them in light of what has been revealed, we can have hope through them. And as a result, we can apply the law in love in the midst of them. Now, external suffering, that's the use of it for the elect. For the reprobate, it is a foretaste of their punishment. For the enemies of God, suffering increases accountability because it is a callback externally. It makes them, it should cause them to pause and to think. But it also is something that is deserved. The suffering is deserved, and it is less than what is deserved. And so, the external suffering that is imposed by God is merciful for the elect, and it is just for the reprobate. Now, at the bottom of page two, I have a list here of envy, power, pleasure, wealth, and reputation. Sorry, sorry, honor, power, pleasure, wealth, reputation. The, the commandments that come before this are all about those things. The fifth commandment is about honor. The sixth commandment is about power. The seventh is about pleasure. The eighth is about wealth. The ninth is about reputation. We can envy all of those things. And there's a right use to them. So the, the earlier commandments teach us about the right use of those things so that we don't think of those things as good in themselves, but as good insofar as they're used for the glory of God. And the tenth commandment reminds us to not view those things as the good. And so the question becomes, is there ever a time where it's appropriate to be unhappy? Is there anything we can be unhappy about? Can we have godly discontentment? And so what I want to put forward to you is, you are not to be satisfied with any condition. Like we talked about earlier, we're supposed to say, we don't get rid of our desires as rational creatures. Rather, we have our desires rightly ordered. And so the desire to grow in wisdom by the appointed means is an appropriate desire. You need to be discontent with your current level of wisdom to desire to get more of it. You go, I don't have all wisdom. I want more wisdom. And so you are motivated to action out of it. The desire to fill the earth with the external display of God's glory is good. And the work to do that requires you to say, there's not enough display of God's glory here. The desire to see others walk in the truth and to see their internal eye see the glory of God, right? The the mind. We can't see God. He's invisible. But we can see his attributes insofar as we can understand them. And so there has to be a concern to grow in these things, to see these things increased. And so covetousness is not just unhappiness with the circumstance. So those are general principles about the Tenth Commandment. Let's look at some particular applications. 
Question 147. What are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor is that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. So, let's walk, let's walk through that a little bit. The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition. Okay, so, you look at your honor, your power, your pleasure, your wealth, and your reputation. And all of those things are not as great as they could be. They may be in shambles. If they are in shambles, can you have contentment with those things because of the fact that you possess the knowledge of God and the fact that it won't be taken away? The fact that it will always increase. So a contentment with the condition involves realizing that what really matters has not been lost. Then, having a charitable frame of your soul toward your neighbor. So a charitable frame is the desire for their good, their love, right? Charity is the translation of the word agape. This idea of the love for the other, the selfless love of the other, the desire for their good. So having a desire from your soul for the good of your neighbor, you have, in order to, to desire that, you have to believe that your good, what's good for you, is to seek your neighbor's good. You have to understand that what's in your interest is to seek your neighbor's good. How can that be? Well, if the knowledge of God is the good, then seeking your neighbor's good, if they're of a like nature as you, well, they have the same good, the knowledge of God. And so if you're trying to seek them growing in the knowledge of God, how could that possibly help to grow your possession of what's good? Well, earlier in the book of Romans, Paul said, you who teach, do you not teach yourself? And so when you share the knowledge of God with somebody else, that increases your own possession of the knowledge of God. And when you share the knowledge of God with somebody else, it encourages them to act in accordance with the knowledge of God and therefore increases the external display of the knowledge of God in right ordering of behavior and speech and in culture creation. And so that increases those things that would help you to grow in the knowledge of God. So seeing your neighbor walk in the truth is for your good. Desiring the good of your neighbor is for your good. Now, the inward motions and affections that we have towards others, what we have is we have this draw because we say, well, there's only so much money in the world. If he's got a dollar, I don't have it. There's only so many opportunities for pleasure. And only so many people can be in charge. And the more of them that are in charge, the more the power is split up. And so if all those things are viewed as the good, if any of those things are viewed as the good, they're finite. There's only so much of it to go around. And so you're not going to want your neighbor to have the dollar because you'd like it yourself. So you can have a right attitude. You can give glory to God about your neighbor possessing something and you not possessing it if you see 
God as the good, because he's infinite, and he can be possessed by all. And when you possess him and share him, it increases your possession. Other things have to be viewed as supporting the knowledge of God and not as more important than the knowledge of God, or else we cannot be content. Now, seeking the good of neighbor has to be something that you view as rational in pursuing your own self-interest, or else you will not be motivated to seek the good of your neighbor. So that's a point of study that's worth spending a lot of time on. If you feel like you don't get that, please talk to me afterwards. and I'll talk to you in more detail about how loving your neighbor is seeking your own good. There are a number of scripture texts here that help to show the positive duties here to be useful to us. And so what I want to emphasize are a couple. 1 Timothy 6.6 Now godliness with contentment is great gain. That verse is designed to be a little bit startling. The idea is you can think about material profit and then you can also think about godliness and contentment and how that's profit. If you are godly and content, if you are seeking the glory of God, if you're seeking to apply what has been revealed by God, and then you're also happy in it, there's a great gain there for you. First, that will continue. Secondly, it will result in others giving honor to God, which will be blessing to you. But you compare that with the idea that you need some of these other things, the things that are external, to be happy, to have gain. The idea is that you can lose all things and still have gain. If you trade everything for godliness and contentment in that condition, there's a gain that's occurred. And so the way to see that is to deconstruct the other things. If the if honor is the good, what problems would that create logically? The same with power. If power is the good. And you do that with each piece. So let's think about it with honor. If honor is the good, the more honored you are above other men, the less honored they are in contrast to you. And honor does not last. What celebrities and politicians and great powers of the earth have you forgotten? There are empires that have lasted more than a century that you don't even know the name of. There are God kings who were not gods and they were kings for a very limited time. Honor, if it is the good, is something that will not last and that only some can have and that the more other people have, the less you have. And so we look at the logic of that. You can do that to each of these other things that if you view them as the good, they are things that you can't keep. So we have to look at what is worth pursuing and be able to have a logically defensible position and to be able to show ourselves why, even in the midst of the loss of other things, we would hold on to the knowledge of God and be content. Let's move on to question 148. Go to page 4. What are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Okay, so discontentment with our own estate. Honor, power, pleasure, wealth, reputation. 
the outward honors of station, right, authority, being what the fifth commandment talks about. If we have any of those things and we're, we are discontent with the degree that we have them, that's sin. We don't view God as having placed us in the proper place. We don't view God as having given to us enough. Looking at somebody else's possession and desiring to take it from them. Being unhappy when they receive good things. Now, the things that come out of that are motions of the will, choices. And the affections that we have, we talked about affections earlier on. This is how we value things. And so a wrong order of valuation results in wrong choices. And that manifests itself in things like grieving at the good of our neighbor. Now we all know that it's not good to be seen as being unhappy when other good things happen to other people. And so we hide it to some extent. Unless we're in our inner circle and we have somebody that we all dislike and we kind of grieve together over that. And so controlling ourselves in public points to the reality that we know that we are disordered when that happens. And so figuring out how is it that we are to think when the wicked receive things that look very good, we know that what God is doing is he's raising somebody up to destroy. Now, if we just stop there, then we're going to rejoice that eventually this person's going to have something bad happen. So what we have to go to is the next thought, which is, or... God is going to cause them to repent. And so we have to pray first, Father, please cause this person to repent, that they would use the things you've given to them well. And then secondly, but if you will not do that, bring justice upon them and spare the righteous. And so having that attitude, being able to go through the full of it, that whole motion is necessary to avoid discontentment when you see the wicked rise. God bring to repentance, or God bring judgment on them. But the desire that God would bring repentance is necessary for us to avoid simply being those who grieve at the good of our neighbor. Now, I want you to look at the bottom of the page. Romans 7, verses 7 to 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. The commandment to not covet points to the inward element. It points to the fact that our desires matter. And it makes it, it, it shows us, it shows us how all of the law is spiritual. So each of the earlier commandments not only have external actions that are required, but they also have inward attitudes that are required. And those inward attitudes are pointed to by the 10th commandment. So the 10th commandment serves to show us how the inward motions and affections need to be ordered. And Paul is saying that he, like many of the Pharisees, look at the law and were able to say, I think I can keep these external requirements. But then, the 10th commandment revealed the sin 
of inordinate affections. So the Tenth Commandment helps us to see about the ordering of the soul and the way the other commandments then are able to be have applied to them. All right, so go to the last page. One of the temptations that we have is to think that if we can simply harden ourselves, we can avoid suffering. So a lot of the kind of pop philosophy that you find encourages stoicism. It encourages figure out how to make it so you don't care so much. Think about the things that you love and then think about horrible things happening to them. Deaden yourself to negative things and then think about how disappointing all the positive things are. And as a result, you will be hardened. You'll be able to go through the world and not be so affected by these things. But I will tell you what, that is not what the Bible commands. Let me tell you something else. That will destroy your motive to action. Stoicism is no remedy to suffering. Stoicism levels out the suffering to be at a more constant high. It can reduce some of the volatility, but it does it by raising the floor. If you eliminate caring about the results of any action, you will find yourself to view everything as meaningless. If it doesn't matter if that happens, it doesn't matter if it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter if it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter if it does happen. And if, if nothing has any meaning, if, if actions and results do not matter, then life becomes meaningless. Stoicism results in a meaningless view of action and life. It is a thing that is popular. People will encourage you to read uh, the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Something I've had lots of young men recommend to me. If you read Stoic literature, it is designed to abuse your senses to come to a place where you view things as not mattering. So that is not wise. That is a form of foolishness. Foolishness results in discouragement, resentment, complaint, and bitterness. But the knowledge of God results in the opposite. The, the, the suppression of the knowledge of the truth results in discouragement because Doing what is good does not matter. Without a definition of good, you, you can't have a motive to action. A resentment at your condition necessarily flows out of foolishness because you can't get what's good without the knowledge of what's good. And if you have a wrong view of what's good, you're going to find it disillusioning. So you will find yourself resenting things more and more. You will, out of your mouth, pour forth complaints, and your general attitude will become one of bitterness. Do not let the external control your attitudes. Wisdom, on the other hand, results in a strength of soul. It gives fortitude, which manifests itself in patience in the face of suffering, and perseverance when you find trouble. Perseverance to subdue. Now, one of the things that you can do to try to comfort yourself in the midst of trouble is to indulge yourself with pretended honor. Right? Have you, have you ever, if anybody's ever read anything by Dostoevsky, there's always a character who sort of is like 
a former Russian general or some sort of low nobility or something like that, and they emphasize something about the glory of their past and some sort of title and some connection to somebody noble that they were connected to by blood or somebody royal. And so this sort of like putting on of airs, this, this I am glorious because of this thing. And that is a way of trying to deaden the absence of honor, so pretended honor. Power trips, which are a great way to destroy your power. Right? If you try to deal with the suffering of your own situation by going on a power trip, by demanding something, using your power for the sake of just feeling your power. A self-indulgence of pleasure, trying to eat or deal with sex or watch movies or play video games or read novels for the sake of trying to escape and avoid the pain of things. This will not give you greater strength. This will weaken your resolve to do what is necessary. Power trips use up your power to prevent you from using your power to do something good, to subdue the problems. Pretended honor lessens your ability to influence other people. With property, you can waste and abuse your property in ways that are perhaps meant to accomplish these other goals. They will destroy your estate and make it so that you can't use your estate to actually solve the problems. Proverbs says it's foolish to honor yourself and then not have the capital goods to have a servant. Because then you can't use the servant to solve the problem. Reputational masks. You, know, you ever met people who claim to have done things they haven't done? Who say they have skills they don't have? Say they know people they don't know? Things to give themselves a sort of false reputation. These false and self-destructive comforts are not comforts. These are delusions. And so what we have to do is to stare into reality and examine our actual problems in life and realize how God is the solution for the problem, how his law addresses it, and how to behave to get out of the trouble. Now, one of the other tendencies towards a false good or an attempt to sort of deaden is cynicism. Uh, Young people in our time are dominated by cynicism. Cynicism is sort of the way of looking world-wise. Right? You say, I don't expect anything good. I don't expect anything good to happen. This isn't that cool. That's not that neat. I've seen better. Right? That, that sort of attitude of being unimpressed all the time. That cynicism, where you say there's nothing really good here, is contrary to Christian hope. And Christian hope is part of what allows us to be content because we know all rights will be wrong, or all wrongs will be righted, and we know that everything will be put in order. And so we have to realize that the eternal mind has decreed an end for his glory. He has sent Christ for the purpose of accomplishing our redemption, and he restores the image of God in man by bringing the word to us and applying the redemption and the word to our souls and building up in a corporate way the church to overcome the world. That individual hope and that collective hope allows us to not become cynics, but to maintain hope in a world with much darkness. Lastly, I want to warn you about a false sort of optimism 
we've talked about pessimism, this sense that you know you can't accomplish anything, the cynic and looking at how there's nothing useful that can be done. But optimism can be fatalistic. And one of the things that happened in the 19th century is the church was very optimistic. The church believed in the victory of Christ in time and history. But the church did not believe that it needed to carefully maintain the means that had been appointed. And so there was a willingness to allow heretics to be in the church as preachers. There was a willingness to not exercise discipline in a rigorous way. There was a willingness to allow for corrupted forms of worship and doctrine to go unchecked. And in the Presbyterian Church in the United States, for example, the last great heresy trial occurred in the 1870s. And it seems to have exhausted the Presbyterian Church. Though most of the Presbyterians were still post-millennial and still believed that Christ would win in time and history, they became so patient with error that they thought, we don't really need to solve this now. We don't need to root this out now because Christ is going to win. And so this sort of fatalistic view that Christ is going to win and we don't need to do what the law of God commands that the law doesn't teach us the means to accomplish the end, is a view that results in inaction. And yes, the Lord Jesus Christ will accomplish his goal. But if we do not apply what he commands in his word, it will not be with just this generation. He will remove those who are negligent stewards. He will put their children into captivity. And it will be generations before diligent stewards are brought up by the power of the Spirit. And so we should not be lulled to sleep by our confidence in the reign of Christ. The reign of Christ is also something to fear as he will discipline those who are inactive. And so, because of our confidence, we ought to engage in war. We should not, because of our confidence, stay in the trenches and play cards. Because of our confidence, we should charge. Because of our confidence, we should apply the bayonet. Because of our confidence, shell after shell should be lobbed into the line of the enemy. And that requires human work. God doesn't need you. But you should pray that he has predestined you to many good works. And so, rather than an optimistic fatalism, we are called to believe the word, to have confidence in the victory, and to apply the word, faith, hope, love. And in the application of the word, we should personally take in on a daily basis the word of God so that we grow in the knowledge of him. We should pray on a daily basis that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. And then we should commit to work with others, re-covenanting with the Lord's Supper. And then we should actually work together to grow in dominion and to disciple the nations. The Tenth Commandment teaches us to be content in the face of adversity and to view adversity as something to be overcome by the application of the law word. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be content with the knowledge of you and that you would help us to apply your word to overcome opposition. Father, we ask that you would give us honor. We pray that you would help us 
to have power to do what is good. We ask that you would, Father, give to us pleasures that we might enjoy in a lawful and moderate way. Father, we ask that you would give to us possession, that we would leave inheritance to our children and our children's children, that we would use wealth for dominion and discipleship in this life. Father, we do ask that you would give to us good reputation. And Father, we ask that if you do not give us these things, that we would still be joyful. Father, we ask that as we don't receive infinite amounts of these things, but rather a limited portion that you have assigned to us, that we would be grateful to you for the pieces you've given and to be good stewards of them, to take the talents you give to us and to invest them well and not bury them in the ground and to not simply look at those who have more and to resent you. Help us to be grateful and joyful, to be motivated out of faith and hope to a love that manifests your glory in the earth. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.